In this episode, we're answering some of your questions. We'll be covering the unit market. Are all inner city units on the nose? Have we got it wrong about capital growth in an age where nobody expects to pay off their big home loans? What's the deal with borrowing for limited title houses at the moment? What multiple of income is safe for a first home buyer to borrow? And what is a good income for buying a home in Sydney? Buying in holiday areas for short-term rental and who is actually buying in the cities at the moment? Welcome to The Elephant in the Room. This is the podcast where we love to talk about the big things in property that never usually get talked about. I'm Veronica Morgan, real estate agent, buyer's agent, co-host of Foxtel's Location, Location, Location Australia and author of Auction Ready. And I'm Chris Bates, mortgage broker. Before we get started, I need to let you know that nothing we say on here can be taken as personal advice. We always recommend you engage the services of a professional. Don't forget that you can access the transcript for this episode on the website as well as Download our free full or forecaster report. Which experts can you trust to get it right? Theelephantintheroom.com.au Our first question is from Sophia and it's all about units. And she said, units are down, but what about premium units outside the CBD, but within the 10K radius? This includes Art Deco units on larger blocks with smaller divisions for each lot. Will we see growth in this market and why are analysts still treating units in high-rise CBD the same as all other units, despite massive differences in land area involved for owners of lot, size of room, ornate ceilings, quality etc etc should owners of these properties ignore the analysts talking about units altogether this is one of my bugbears what about you chris <laughs> <laughs> i mean i think most people should ignore the analysts talking about collective data really because it's a bit pointless you buy one property in a suburb on a street i mean sophia i'd be you know absolutely ignoring what's happening to the unit market because if you own one of these or you're thinking about buying these type of apartments you've got to you know, I guess assess it based on that opportunity in particular rather than what the stats are saying. I guess my overall observation, you sound like you know what you're doing, to be honest. You, you're going for smaller blocks in, you know, more probably premium suburbs. And, and ideally you're looking at areas where they're not building a lot of other apartments or if they are, they're very expensive, you know, targeted at downsizes and avoiding areas where there's lots of high rises. And that's not just in the CBD. It's, there's lots of pockets over, say, Sydney and Melbourne where they're lots of high density. It doesn't even have to be 10 levels. It could be six levels and, you know, you're seeing that sort of come together. So, yeah, absolutely. Those performance will, A, have performed historically, you know, very well compared to the new properties and will continue to perform well compared to those. So what we saw as a client, I guess, in the, the last boom is, you know, 2012 to, say, 2014, a lot of people could still afford houses, you know, pockets like the inner west, for example, but a lot of places sort of ran on young couples and families. And so they were looking at that exact type of apartment you were speaking about, Sophia, that sort of bigger, older apartment in sort of premium areas. But once, you know, 2018, 2019, the cool down sort of happened, everyone got cold feet. And then 2019, they went back to buying houses and they got too expensive and they went to buy apartments. But last year was a really interesting year. A lot of young families who traditionally would have bought these these apartments you spoke about, went to regional areas and they went and bought in Central Coast, Wollongong, Byron, Blue Mountains, et cetera. Um, but we've seen a complete flip in 2021 and those people who would have or thinking about those locations are now back buying those exact apartments you speak about, Sophia, because they can't afford houses and they don't want to do the commute and they want to live in lifestyle locations. So they're not building any more of them 
And as Sydney population grows long term, they're going to be a real, you know, a big part of the, what people aspire to are these sort of apartments in premium areas. So, yeah, absolutely great investments, especially if in those type of blocks you're talking about. Yeah, I agree. I think that um, there was a little bit of a, a blip in the market, which was an opportunity for uh, those buyers of those apartments and, and they were negatively impacted. And I think that that correlates what you're talking about there, that the buyers that would normally have looked at them took off, got out of Sydney. But also you've got to realise there were very few investors buying at that time as well. So they, they're they not looking at that stock either. And investors are starting to re-enter the market now. And that's a, that's a, a very, you know, for a, a smart investor, one is not trying to buy investor stock. These are can often make very, very good investment properties. So I think that that will change. And we certainly this year have seen prices rebound of that type of property you're talking about there, Sophia. And uh, we've seen competition really ramp up. So I think there was a bit of an opportunity there and it's you're absolutely right. It's one of my big bugbears that, you know, when you look at aggregate data uh, for anything with regards to property, that it's problematic, but particularly with apartments because you have such diversity of stock in different areas Then uh, and there's also such diversity in terms of return and in terms of growth rates. So therefore, you know, all market data hides big losses in some areas and also hides better better performance in other areas. So you really do have to get down on a granular level, look at your local areas. But like Chris said, I think that you are you've you've got the sense of what a quality property is. So stick to your guns. Absolutely, investors are, are these are because of the price point compared to the houses. Houses are out of reach for a lot of investors, a because they can't borrow it, and maybe they don't want to spend that amount on an investment property. And so, apartments are you know, especially in Sydney. I think Melbourne's a different story. Um, if we're, we're talking about this, um, I'm not as confident on apartments down there. But yeah, the apartments sort of the investors coming back. But also, Sophia, I'd really encourage you to look if you're thinking about buying. You know, encouraged to make sure the apartment also appeals to downsizers if you can. You know, downsizers are a massive market and they're usually cashed up and they want to stay in premium areas because they're friends and their networks and the things they like to do are in those areas. And so, yeah, they, they need options and, you know, nicer, bigger, older apartments, ideally not too many stairs are, are great options. It's all about scarcity as well and that's a wonderful thing about those Art Deco apartments is that they can't build them anymore because they were built, you know, coming out to 100 years ago. And <laughs> that's a style that is not replicated now. Okay, we've got another question here from Rob. Just listened to our 1st of February 2021 listener Q&A. <laughs> uh, surprised by your answer, Chris, about how to retire from property. This is a bit of a convoluted question. Based on what you outlined, if you have enough equity, you would be better to go for yield rather than capital growth. Targeting better, more expensive houses with more growth potential but have lower yield just means more time to build up the offset account to completely offset the loan amount and delay retirement. Targeting capital growth would just be for something to leave the kids. I reckon you could devote a whole episode to this <laughs> as a whole lot of property people pushes financial freedom through property, but it does not work if you need to save the full cost of the property you purchase. I suspect the answer to this lies in not buying ridiculously expensive properties as investments. Well, do you agree? Potentially. I think, you know, I'd rather, if as long as it's not sacrificing 
the capital growth. I'm buying something cheaper just so I can feel like I've got a cheaper property, but I'm ultimately buying on a poorer street. Although, hang on a minute, it. do you do you remember your answer of that last Q and A? Because I remember it. It surprised me. Basically, what you what you put together was put forward was like if you basically just keep borrowing and and never actually repay debt, you can you can afford to retire and live off property, which I don't think you really advocate for. I think that was an answer to a different question. No, the the answer was, you know, how do you sort of, you know, build, how do you do Mm. it? And I was giving an answer, if you wanted to do it, this is what you would do. Whether people should follow that is another story. And this is, you know, there is actually a strategy there that you could employ Mm. if you sort of think about it. And I mean, ultimately, the thing you should always be focused on is what is your net wealth in that property. And Absolutely, you shouldn't be targeting yield. You should be targeting long-term, sustainable capital growth and buying properties that are, A, super scarce, but also suit people who are earning great money and you also have got money. So if your property suits them and there's not enough of them and they're not going to build any more of them, really you're just giving it time. So I would always want to own those. I mean, you don't actually have to build up enough cash to fully offset that loan. But, you know, if you borrow a million dollars in 2021, and you retire in 2040, well, that million dollars isn't the same as a million dollars today. So inflation will write a lot of that loan off for you. Rents will rise dramatically over that 20 years. So that property was potentially negatively geared, will definitely be most likely be positively geared in, in 20 years. Then you can add in, maybe you save a portion of that amount in an offset account. So you don't actually have to fully offset your loan. You don't have to get to retirement with your property's all paid off. I think that's a bit of a myth. What you wanted to have, though, is an amount in the offset account plus potentially your home paid off, plus your amount in super, plus you've got maybe some share portfolio as well. So what you're doing is you're opening up buckets of money that you can potentially sell down and sometimes you may make a decision to live off your offset account because investment markets isn't a good time to sell. And so you just eat away at some of that money you build up in the offset. Sometimes you sell your shares, you know, if you got some ASX shares at the moment or some tech shares, you may say, you know what, let's just take some of our profits. Or you might take money out of super, you know, because but you also it's in shares a lot of the time as well. So you might just take the minimum out in your pension. But ultimately you want to be building up multiple pots. And I think a pot that most people miss out is they don't try to build up the money in an offset account. And one of the tricks you can do is when you are in your 50s and you are in your 60s, is you can be very smart around how you structure your loans and release equity on your portfolio, depending on what you're earning and your incomes, and just release the equity pre-retirement. Now, I'm not saying this is what some people should do, but it is something you can do. You know, there are strategies around it. You know, retirement planning is actually really complex because, you know, we all live different lives and we've all got different means to get there. So there's not a one-size-fits-all and you've just got to really sort of say, well, look, ultimately what sort of life do I want to live how can I build up as many pots as money to help me live that life, especially if I may not live just till I'm 85, I might live till I'm 95 or might have health problems or whatever. So, yeah, it's, it's not a saying you should do this. It's just there are ways to do it if you sort of get clever with debt. And that's the thing there, isn't it? It's just getting clever with debt, but the capital growth is your safety net really, isn't it? Absolutely. you know, And that's whether you want yield, like you might get to retirement and say, look, I've bought a property and I've got heaps of capital growth, heaps of equity in it. But I have to, the only way I'm going to get that is, you know, selling down. And that wouldn't be a bad thing. You know, you're in retirement, you know, you're maybe not earning too much money on paper, your income's from super. And yes, you've got to pay a bit of capital gains tax, but you haven't got an income. So, you, you know, that's going to lower the amount of capital gains tax. I and mean, you might, you might have two properties, ideally, you know, that's one of the problems of just having one investment property is you, 
it's unless you can get access to that equity, you might have to sell it and then you get out of the market. So even if you had to sell one of your properties at 75, that would release a hell of a lot of cash that would maybe last you for the next decade or something. But the goal is, which is what the question was originally, it was how do you keep holding the properties longer term? Yeah. And so what you've got to do is get creative on how you get access to different liquidity, different cash. And so, yeah, the, the fall is always you sell your property, but that's not the idea. You want to hold that for as long as possible. Now, our third question isn't really a question, but I'll have a question at the end of it for you, okay? So it's from, um, now, apologies for pronunciation, Yei Chua um, or Yi Chua, fan of the show, not a question, but I have a data point on limited title. So limited title in New South Wales is a form of Torrens title. So basically just a little history lesson, before there was such thing as Torrens title, which is the the form of ownership of property, there was this thing called old systems title, right? And the limitation on some properties is still there because what it means is that the boundaries haven't been properly submitted to the land titles office to correctly establish exactly where the extents of that property lie, right? And so there's quite a few of them still existing in, in the older areas, certainly in where my office is in Balmain. We come across it a lot recently, bit on a property in Redfern with limited title, another one in Darlington, another one in Paddington. So they're, they're all over the place. But recently they've become an issue for borrowers. And this is where I'll get to you with the question I've got for you, Chris. But what Ye Chua is saying is limited title does lower the price. He's his or her, sorry, their first two choices were limited title but couldn't get a loan, ended up going for 50 to 100K less than his offer. So he thinks the strategy works by definition, that is reducing the number of qualified buyers will on average lower the price, which we know that. This was in the middle of COVID, so results maybe vary. He's got a property in Zetland and one in Chippendale, both of which uh, he thinks they're comparable and both show a 50 to, to 100K lesser sale price, right? So this is an issue that's come up and you and I have spoken about this off our fair, Chris, because we've had some mutual clients that, you know, have been questioned as to whether they can borrow a limited title property. And I've also got some other clients that aren't your clients that need to bridge because they don't want to sell their home before they buy their upgrade property. And they, whoever they're financed with uh, is not allowing them to buy a limited title. So this is something that has really only become an issue of very recent times. So can you sort of shed any light on why that's the case, Chris? Well, uh, you know, all I can talk about is when clients come to us and say, you want to buy this type of property with limited title and we just check with bank credit. I mean, I'm not sure exactly why there's people can't afford to get finance. There might be some banks out there, but when we did one with ING a couple of years ago, that was limited title, no problems. They just had to do it sort of surveyor report sort of after settlement so it wasn't a big deal and we did one today just literally nab there were no problems with it so you know i'd, I'd be surprised that it's a an issue across lots of banks well there's you know if, if, if nab will do it so that's probably more likely most of the big four will do it and i've heard of cba having a problem with cba it. won't do it yeah maybe but then you've got nab nab and cba credit policies very similar so if you can get approved for a loan at cba you know unless you've got you know, they're very similar credit policies. So you should be able to get approved at NAP. This is interesting though. I mean, in terms of the evidence that he's bring, putting forward to say that, well, this means that prices are reduced, I actually would dispute that. And the reason I dispute that is because some buyers, in fact, many buyers and agents have, have correlated this thought, have no idea 
if they don't check with their broker first and get their broker look at the contract first, and if they're not using a lawyer that does a lot of property, then they will potentially have zero idea that their bank might have an issue with it. And then they won't find out until they get into the settlement period. And and so when this first came up in our office, and we're talking maybe about six months ago now, um, I got quite excited. I was like, oh, there's an opportunity here because I'm thinking along the lines of this, you know, these properties are going to, there's going to be buyers that fall off the last minute not going to auction on these properties and they're going to be think they're finance, they're not going to be there and we're going to be able to clean up and get some opportunities. So we started this this whole thing, right, right, let's look specifically everything that's on the market that we think is any good. Let's see if it's limited title and if so, we're going to talk to our investors about it. But I very quickly after talking to agents realised that most buyers are not at they wouldn't have the faintest. And then there were some hairy moments for some buyers in the settlement period where they had to actually get these these uh, surveys done and ready to submit to the land titles office so to alleviate the bank's concerns. But you're saying that you're just not coming up against it much? Oh, I mean, it's like, obviously it's only a small portion of properties that have this and when we've checked it's always been fine. I mean, it's like buying small apartments. Like people say, oh, you can't get mm. loans to the small apartments. True. You can there's just only a handful of lenders that will want to do it, whether you qualify those lenders, you know, is it much cheaper because of that potentially because there's less demand for that type of property. I wouldn't want to buy it, but I don't know whether a limited title is something that would stop me buying a property or... We can I'd- fix it. That's the one exactly. good thing. Yeah. You can't make a, a 42 square metre yeah. apartment any bigger, <laughs> <true>. right? <laughs> but yeah, you can true. actually, yeah. you buy that property and, and we've had various indications that it's around about the $5,000 mark to get the, the right type of survey drawn up and have it submitted to the land titles office and get that limitation taken off the title. That's something that I would just recommend. That if anybody buys limited title or if you find yourself owning limited title at the moment, that's what I'd be recommending you do. Absolutely. I mean, it's no negative to that. I mean, yes, 5,000, but I'm sure that it just creates a lot, any issues that might pop up with, you know, through settlement. And you just don't want to, when someone's hot on your property, you don't want them to be stopping to question their emotions. Mm, yeah. And uh, if they're stopping and questioning and giving it a day or two to figure out where they can get limited title, that's potentially going to cool them down and they might go and look at another property um, and you might miss them. And so, it's like, you know, tidying up your car for, you know, selling it. You know, you get rid of all that. You make sure it's tidy and it's ready to go. Um, so someone has no doubts. The same as presenting a property for sale. That would, to me, would be a no-brainer in terms of presenting your property for sale. It's getting rid of a, something like a limited title. <laughs> so, yeah, I don't, I mean, yeah, is there a strategy sort of, Ray, in going around looking at limited title and trying to make a small no. amount? I'd say good luck. Um, <laughs> and uh you're going to be trying to find properties and limited titles. Yeah, and nah. I don't think you're going to be able to deliver on that strategy because I just don't think there's enough properties and I don't think there's enough profit to, to make it a worthwhile strategy because ultimately the profit comes through the type of property longer term, how, some, uh, how long someone holds that rather than a, maybe a tiny little bit. There's not enough buyers that are impacted by it. I think that's probably more the point. And and secondly is that if you are impacted by that, I mean, if if that is something to check on the contract. It's it's on the title search. It's not hard to find out. And I would be running that past your broker just in case it does impact on you. But generally speaking, there's not the opportunity out there that, that uh, I was all excited about. Yeah, absolutely. When you're doing a loan, so one of our loan sort of scorecards that we put together, you know, because a lot of clients are we're lodging things and they're going to take time. And so what we do is give them clarity on whether we think it's going to have any problems with a pre-approval. Now, banks aren't declining loans. Like that was happening in 2018 where they were declining loans for no reason. And literally there was 
frustrating. We were like going, that does not make sense. It does not match credit policy. And they're like, no, we don't want them as a customer. And that was that was literally happening in 2018. That does not happen anymore. If you fit credit policy, they will approve your loan. Part of that sort of scorecard that we do is we say, have you got other options at other banks? And for some people, there's literally no other options, especially like someone like expats. There's very little lending for expats. But some people, yes, there's plenty of options. And so whenever you're sort of looking at a type of property that might be a little bit, you know, smaller apartment, maybe it's company title, you know, limited title, just run it past because there's probably lots of other options, maybe not at the bank you pre-approved at. All right. Now, a question from Andrew. Hi, guys. Love the pod. Love you too, Andrew. Probably more of a question to Chris. Uh, I'm a potential first-home buyer in the northern beaches of Sydney and would like to try to get an understanding of how much are people willing to borrow to get into the market. I was always told don't go higher than three or four times your annual household income, but with the market going crazy at the moment, I realise we're going to have to go a lot higher. I understand you can't give personal advice, but it would be nice to know on average what you are currently seeing for first-home buyers and just in general. I think think we might need to go up to 5.5 times to get something decent. I know it's not the greatest metric to use in this low rate environment. So, I mean, three or four times you've been told something always uh, and you're a first-home buyer <laughs> without trying to join the dots. I reckon your parents probably said, oh, you know, we never went more than three or four times our annual salary. <laughs> and, uh, you know, maybe it was on one salary and maybe they could have done that. Good luck doing that nowadays unless you've got a super high salary and you're looking to buy something quite conservative. I mean, most banks will lend six, you know, even up to maybe seven times. Banks are get, definitely getting nervous in that six to seven range and over seven, a lot of banks won't want to do it. It's just in high-risk lending and APRA is watching the banks. So that's what you can do. Yeah, pretty comfortable, say, somewhere six to seven. Are people doing it? Generally, we, you know, had this conversation with a client today. Everyone wants to be naturally have a smaller mortgage, right? That's just common sense. You know, I've paid off faster. Don't have to worry about how big the repayments are. And so if people can get a smaller mortgage and get into a house and a location that they want to be in longer term, amazing. But the frustrating thing is, you know, you want to say, for example, in this situation, Andrew, you want to buy something in the northern beaches. So you're wanting to live in one of the most premium parts of the capital city. And, you know, to do that, you know, properties probably aren't priced at three or four times the average salary. They're a lot higher than that. And so if you're not willing to, say, compromise on that and spend more money, then you're going to have to change your suburb. And that's what most people do is they say, well, actually, I'd love to spend a smaller mortgage, but I'm not going to get where I want to live. I want to own one life, I want to have a family or whatever it is, I'm willing to stretch. Especially in hot markets, there's probably two things. So people will stretch if, A, they've been burnt in, say, the last boom or they've missed out or they've gone through a lot of emotions and they've got a family. So there's a huge emotional drive. They will stretch and they'll borrow, borrow six or seven times their salary, you know, and they'll get clarity and confidence that they're willing to do that. A, maybe it's rates, it's fixing Maybe they're confident that their future income is going to be higher in the future. They've got other money set back as buffer. So a lot of people aren't borrowing, you know, 90% with no buffer, uh, seven times income. That's not as common. Probably it's more around that sort of what you say, five, five to sort of six range. But they've also got a buffer left over at the end of it and they're fixing and maybe they've got a bonus and uh, and they're confident that there's wage rises in the future. And so it's 5.5 times today's salary, but that doesn't mean if your salary goes up 30 40%, well, now your metric has now dropped, you know, to say three and a half times. Yeah, that's kind of what people are doing. 
If you like what you're hearing here, please share this episode with others you feel would benefit. And while you're at it, why not leave us an iTunes review? Five stars, please. Every review helps make it easier for other people to find us and hear what our amazing guests have to say. We love hearing your questions and we're planning more listener Q&A episodes. Please send your questions in. You can send them via the website, which is theelephantintheroom.com.au or directly via email to questions at theelephantintheroom.com.au. Now, we have another question which sort of follows on from this, actually via Twitter. Chris and me, so it's directed to me, (laughs) Chris and you keep referring to people on good income. What is considered a good income, let's say, for Sydney? What's a reference baseline? For example, if you're looking at a million-dollar property, then $100,000 is considered a good income, assuming 80% LVR. What do you think? Uh, I mean, because we do talk about it a lot, actually, we do refer to it, but I sort of refer to it the abstract, but I know that you're dealing with people's borrowings every day. So how, how, what is the metric for what's a good income when it comes to buying property, particularly in an expensive city? It's a tricky question there. I mean, the reality is income, putting my sort of socialist mindset on, income isn't a fair metric on the work you do. No. You know, different industries get paid unproportionate to the amount of effort and the amount of impact they make in society. And it's my sort of real uh, belief and I think it's not really fair, you know, a nurse gets paid X and someone who, you know, et cetera. And so that's the frustrating thing about society, teachers, there's lots of things, right? And so, you know, when we say a good income, I think it's really, it's hard because people are doing some of the best and most important jobs in the world are not earning the incomes that you'd consider, uh, say, good, you know, and it's not fair, right? So what is a good income? You know, if you look at sort of sort of stats with the the ATO and all that sort of stuff, you know, I guess I think well, I've looked at it and brought it up, but I mean, earning over say right, what one hundred and fifty to one hundred and eighty, you know, it's only maybe two three hundred thousand people that are earning that. And you know, really, when I'm thinking about what properties would I want, I would want that sort of demographic to to want my property. You know, that to me is sort of the the people that, you know, maybe it's one and, and a lot of them, are you know, maybe one's working part-time or maybe the other partner's earning, you know, a higher income as well. So when I say incomes, I'm probably referring to the higher upper echelon, maybe the top 5 10% of salaries out there. So they're not sort of people starting out in their careers, you know, maybe on say 80 to say 120, 130, which a lot of professional sort of services sort of are. It's probably that next level. So people aren't earning this money in their 20s generally. It's most likely people in that 30 to 45 bracket. You know, and a lot of people, you know, aren't earning that money today, but they will be earning that in, say, 10 years' time if they're, you know, investing in their knowledge and they're in, say, a good industry that also pays well. So, I mean, that sort of answers the question, but it is a bit of a social question as well, which is a different point, which I hope (laughs) I answered. Very much so. And I guess... We do refer to good incomes in the context of capital growth that we're looking for areas to buy in that are underpinned and supported by good incomes, as you say, and the people that own those good incomes want to live there and want to live in the types of properties that we are talking about, which is fundamentally about scarcity and also, you know, understanding the the drivers and the different characteristics of property of property that people in local markets want. And so I guess it's an investment criteria really, isn't it? That rather than us say you need to be on a good income in order to buy in Sydney and this at these income levels, you know, this is the price point that you can get in at. It's more around fundamentally what drives the market and what gives you more security in terms of the long-term asset that you're buying, right? 
Yeah, exactly. And so income growth as a collective across a city in a country, you know, you could say that it's zero, right? Uh, and it's not much. You know, there's probably economists will be shouting saying it's actually 0.3%. <laughs> but there's, there'll be a subset of the population, which isn't fair, which is not what I, uh, you know, it's, but there'll be a subset, maybe it's 10 or 20% of that population that have got wage rises. And, you know, some sectors, for example, tech sectors uh, have got big wage rises, right? And so where are these people moving? And so they might be moving somewhere like you, Veronica, like the wage growth in somewhere like Balmain is probably a lot more than the country's yeah. wage growth. Yeah. And so, and there'll be other pockets. So where are those people moving to? And that's what's driving, that can drive prices over the longer term. So if there's more people collectively maybe aren't earning wage rises, but if a subset are earning wage rises, which always happens in a capitalist society, where are they moving to and where are they driving wage rises within? And you can census can show this as well. You can see that the wage rises in a suburb, for example, like Balmain, would be higher than, say, the wage rises as a collective. And you can easily find that information out. Our sixth question is from Anne. What are your thoughts on buying a property in a holiday spot specifically to rent out on Airbnb? or buying something that could be either tenanted long-term or rented on Airbnb. Referring to me, I talk a lot about buying quality asset. Could it please tell us exactly what that means? <laughs> what's my criteria? And how about we go with this one? Let's, let's Two parts of this, you know, what's a good asset? What's a quality asset? We'll tackle that first and then we'll talk about the holiday spot. So I'll, I'll say what a quality asset is, and it leads on from what we were just talking about, is that in any area, so you've got to look for areas that have got under, the underpinnings of a, a solid area and, and they are things like income, they are, they are things like population growth, they are things like lifestyle, communication, transport, all that sort of stuff. So you find yourself a good area to invest in, then you've got to actually spend some time understanding the demographic of people that are in that area, the different types of buyer groups, so your first home buyers, your downsizers, your, your young families, your older families, your investors, et cetera, et cetera. You know, where's the good pockets, where's the not great pockets? And, and then understanding the types of property in different price brackets that appeal to the majority of people, so the largest groups. So, and we talk about multiple buyer pools, so we look at properties that – will appeal to a first-time buyer and a downsizer and an investor, for instance. So a quality asset are those properties that have those characteristics. And there's some general characteristics that we look for, such as natural light and not on a main road and aspect and um, placement on the block and floor plan and build quality and, and whether it's got period features or not and all of those sorts of things, you know, proximity to parks, proximity to transport without being too close. All of those things are very important, but there are subtle differences that you need to equip yourself with a full understanding of in every Every particular area that you're looking at buying in. So that's fundamentally what a quality asset is. It's it's the cherry on top, if you like, because you can go and buy any property in any suburb, but are you buying a good one? And that's really got to understand what drives that suburb and that area before you can truly answer that question. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. It's like a top-down approach. What's the location? Then what's the suburb within that location? And then what's the part of that suburb and then what's the best streets in that suburb and then what size of that street and then which, you know, what parts of that, you know, parts of that street could be better than other parts of that street, right? And so mm. it's really that local and then you get to a property level and it could be on the best street in the best side of the street but it could be an awful property, floor plan, yes. need a lot of work, it could be dark, it could be privacy issues. And so it's, you know, it really is like, you know, a top down but then you have to get super micro and, 
you know, usually you're saying no to most properties because there's always something that turns you off. Oh, you know? God, yeah. And so, so massive majority is is no. Yeah, and it's like something you're like, I can't get around that. It's south-facing and it's dark and it's hard to get light in. And, you know, Bottom of the hill, or low side of the road. Privacy is a huge one, I think. Um, <laughs> yes. That's, you know, you can't change it if someone's looking over your backyard or something like that, right? Uh, or main road, like the well, road's not going to change. We can if you can plant bamboo. I love bamboo. Oh, do you? Uh, <laughs> yeah, good luck not getting the, that quite. The non-spreading bamboo. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, I mean, for certain properties, you can actually address the issue around the property. Other properties, yeah. you can't. And and that's that's part of it. It's like, mm. is there something holding this property back that could be addressed? And, and there's a potential value add there. But I think what you know, what people sort of think, oh, I'm going to buy the worst house in the best street. And, and you know what, that's often a really, it's a mass, it's a misnomer. I mean, it doesn't necessarily follow that just being in the right location means you can, you can do well and definitely not being on the right street. Can you do well? You can, there's plenty of people that lose money in good suburbs. Oh yeah. Especially when they, they buy and then they sell, like potentially, You'd be buying in great suburbs right now, but you might be buying on the busiest road and mm. paying an absolute premium for it. We may have some type of 2018 sort of credit crunch again or it could be something in the world um, and then you have something, a divorce or you need to sell yep. something. And absolutely, once you add in 10% of transaction costs uh, and potentially overpaid in a real hot market for a poor asset, those people got smashed in in good suburbs in 2017 to 2019, and we were talking about them at the time. So, yeah, absolutely, it's not just buying it and going, I bought in that suburb, which everyone says, I can't lose money in that suburb or I can't lose money in in property. (laughs) It's commonly commonly said, yeah. Yeah, and said buying somewhere for Airbnb. Now, we've had clients do this super successfully, but what they bought is in areas that ultimately it's – the property, what they wanted was what the locals wanted in that city and they were in the premium end of that market. So maybe walking to the beach or it's a unique property, for example, it could be a property that when you're showing it on Airbnb, it just has some type of X factor. And not only do you get a lot more money on Airbnb, you never, you always usually rent it out as well because when someone's looking at experiences, which is what Airbnb is, they're looking at the properties and going, oh, wow, look at that. I'd love to go and stay there. Uh, it could be something you manufacture. Um, you could definitely do it through styling, but yep. it's usually something else that makes people go, well, even though it's not the be- most beautiful house, I get that experience. Maybe the view. it's a view or something. Yeah. So if I would always only do it personally if I know I'm going to get ridiculous Airbnb because it's just always going to be rented because it's always going to be the best property on Airbnb. And a lot of people stuff it up because they just think, I'll oh, buy a place down the south coast and rent on Airbnb, but it's never rents because everyone's always nicer properties to rent yep. on Airbnb and other exactly people are doing right. it. Or it becomes a party house. You annoy all the neighbours because, you know, that's really where big groups go because it's not the nicest house. Yeah, that's true. So you've got to be really careful with that. You've obviously got to be careful who you let it to and, you know, usually a premium man, but even the premium men to get you <laughs> the can. money, you know, partying as well. So you can't, you know, yeah. $2,000 a night doesn't mean parties aren't going to happen. So No. I think I think the issue is though, and she sort of alludes to this saying by all buying something that could be either tenanted long term. And I think the Airbnb thing has actually the weak the weakness of that or the the vulnerability of that strategy has been uh, exposed by COVID, and that 
you know, there was a lot of people really hurting because suddenly there's no income. And yeah, sure, you might get high income, you might get high high occupancy, et cetera, et cetera. But it's it's you know, risk equals dollars, right? So you know, you get higher returns on higher risk, and that's that's because you there is more risk associated with that than having a long-term stable tenant. So I would say that if you're going to buy a property in any of these holiday areas, you've got to buy it with other things in mind. Airbnb, that's a cherry on top. That's, that's you know, that's great if you can take advantage of that for a period of time, but it does have to have other fundamentals and it does have to have local demand or you have to be buying it with your view to your, your own usage of it at some point. Otherwise, I absolutely would not be buying any property, doesn't matter where it is, specifically for short-term rental. Also, because legislation may well turn against you. The local council may, may uh, outlaw it, state governments, you know, still in the process of, of changing legislation around it. You know, so so all these things, as I said, equate to risk. I'd be I'd be very careful about doing it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you only want to do it if there was a huge return on the yield on the Airbnb because you had something super special, and you don't know these things until you actually get it and test it out. Um, you could get all you know, you get overexcited, overconfident. But ultimately, I would only buy it if the capital value was still likely to rise because mm. the buyer pool for that property would like to increase. So where clients have done really well is they've bought in areas that people want to go on holiday to, say leaving a capital city. So it could be outskirts of say Melbourne or Sydney, etc. It's also somewhere where people are likely to go regularly because it's not too far. So it's not down at Marimbula or something where it's six hours, it's probably, you know, one to three hours away. But it's also where fundamentally people would move to to live. And so people would leave a capital city and move there because they'd be happy to raise a family in that location. And so it's usually got good schools. And if, you, if you're buying that, then Sydney home buyers are looking at that now, especially with COVID. And so some people could have done really well out of this if they were smart and they bought in one of the premium ends of the regional towns. They were doing really well on Airbnb. And then 2020 sort of lit that regional movement. And now they've got all the capital rise as well which would have happened on a trickle effect, but, it, you know, 2020 sort of really, you know, pushed that forward. So A bit of luck there. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and you, and you, you've got to be really careful buying these, you know, but now that that shift has happened, you know, maybe it's going to continue down that path, we just don't know, but a lot of the growth in a lot of these areas has happened very quickly. you just got to be careful whether you, um, you know, you've just missed the boat a little bit there with the majority of the growth. So be very careful buying for Airbnb. It's usually big warning light whenever I hear that, uh, the first thing an investor wants to do. Yeah. Okay. Our last question is from Will. Demand is soaring in capital cities, demographically speaking. Who are these people who have flooded into these property markets post-COVID? Where are they finding the huge deposits and servicing mortgages and now multiples larger for the same properties than just a few years ago, even months ago? Where were these people before and why are they rushing to property now? How are they protected against even small rate rises in the future? And are we setting ourselves up for a big correction and real a real one this time? What will the fallout be from this? Any ideas? <laughs> Good question, Will. And, you know, when you look at the results, you're like, how the hell is someone paying that amount for that property? And there's two things. One, yes, they're probably borrowing more than they would have, say, 12 months ago, A, because they can, and B, because they've got more confidence to do that because of low rates. And low rates drive behaviour, which I've said many times in this podcast, and we really saw it when rates went under 2%, get really long-term fixed rates. And so, yep, people are definitely taking on massive mortgages and that's what's driving prices. But also 
they've got huge deposits. And so, you know, when you say where are they finding this, not the first home buyers. They're buying in that sort of and maybe uh, very few first home buyers buy the high ones, more probably the lower ones where they they feel comfortable. But, you know, they definitely are there, but not many. But it's usually that upgrader. So they've got some other asset that they purchased maybe five, ten years ago and that asset's done reasonably well for them and they've also been a, quite good at saving. And so lots of clients are going in there with, you know, one to two million dollar deposits and it sounds crazy but mm. the reality is it's true. And so, you know, yeah, when they're buying this say, place for, say, two and a half, three million, you're like, how is that possible? Well, they're probably only borrowing one and a half probably if not more, less than that, you know, and that's maybe only say four or five times their income or maybe a bit more. But um, that's really what's sort of happening. It's And why are they doing it now, which is part of the question, what was the rush? Well, low rates were firstly. There's also pent-up demand. You know, there's been a low lot of number of properties on the market for five or six years. A lot of people missed out in the 2016, 2017 boom, wish they bought a house. Then in 2018, 19, they said, oh, prices are falling. And then they prices started rising, uh, so we're not going to buy in 2019. Oh, no, we've missed it. And then COVID happened and the world's going to crash. And so a lot of people put off that home buying decision for, say, five years. And you've got a lot of people who have had families and got older over that time as well. So this is pent-up demand. They all rushed into the markets because they're like, actually, the world's not going to collapse. We really need a house. Rates are low. Why don't we go and do it? And there wasn't enough properties on the market hence why prices have sort of risen. Are we protected against even small rate rises? I'd say yes, even if there was a half a percent to 1% sort of rate rise, so around three to three and a half, then I think most people would still be okay. Most people are factoring in at least 3% rates in their mind. They're not sort of thinking rates will be 2% forever. But if rates rose to say 4%, absolutely, you would see massive reductions in spending, massive reductions to our economy, Etc. So, what would cause rates to rise to four percent? You'd have to argue it's worldwide inflation, and that all this money ends up in asset uh, in other not asset prices, but in you know goods and services and wages and stuff. And that's the real worry that we get this you know big inflation blowout. But that's been a worry for years. And so, is there going to be a real correction? You could wait. You can sit and wait for that. But we can show that people who waited through 2018, 2019, maybe missed all that out. If you waited last year, you missed it again. And so I think it's pretty dangerous waiting on your home because your home is something that you can easily get blown out and you can never get in there. So it's not even a waiting, it's going to get cheaper. You just have to change your strategy because you waited and it's not coming back to where you want it to. Yeah. And I think too, one of the other, you know, who are these people and where have they been? I think when they were in lockdown, they really had time to really look at their homes and work out whether they are big enough and whether they are comfortable enough, whether they like them enough, whether all of that sort of stuff. And I, and I think that, you know, there a lot of people have come out saying, you know, if that happens again, I don't want to be locked in that same house. But also I'm now working from home a hell of a lot more than I was and so is my wife, so is my husband, so is my, so, you know. And, and because of that, there has been more demand for more space in our homes and more value around that. So, and and that's, I think, a fundamental driver behind all of this. I think also uh, first-home buyers, um, they haven't been going on their holidays. A lot of people who, um, you know, like to enjoy life and so you not know, just going overseas on holidays, even just going out on weekends and, you know, restaurants, et cetera. A lot of people earn a lot of money but they spend a lot of money 
And, you know, COVID was sort of a reset for them. And they said, well, you know what, why don't we really go and save for ours? We're not going on holidays this year. And mm. it was sort of like a – so we definitely saw, you know, a lot of first-time buyers who really just knuckled down and built, you know, quite a lot of cash quite fast because they've really put a focus on it. And then they've gone to parents and said, you know, can you sort of help us? And parents have helped and they're willing to do it because they've seen their house go up. And so you've got this positive feedback loop as well. The media got involved as always. And so that's what's created FOMO. And then, yeah, that's what's really driving it. So yeah, COVID was an interesting year because I do think a lot of people who you know may have just put it off three or four years' time really knuckled down and, and sort of entered the market, hence why first-home buyers were so high a share. <laughs> so almost accidental saving. It's like, oh, if I've got you know, a bit of a deposit here, oh, yeah. maybe we should knuckle down and finish the job. Oh, that's pretty cool. <laughs> so- I mean, we had a client yesterday, exact same thing, you know. Um, yeah, she says she's had 100 grand in the last year, you know, cause, and she wow. never really had cash. Still not enough, <laughs> to be honest, um, to what yeah. she wants to do. But she's not far off. Like, And that's the thing. It's like the uh, behavioural bias. I don't can't really recall it right now. But when you get closer to your goal, you get more motivated. Mm. And so when you're looking at a 200 grand deposit to enter the house and you've got 30 grand in the bank, well, you just switch off from society. You go out and uh, enjoy yourself and go on holidays because you think it's not unattainable. But once that got to 100, you're like, wow, if we only had an extra 100 and we can save, you know, X. Now these we can numbers, do this. Yeah, and it happens. And so, and, you know, even yesterday, a client, um, you know, she's so close, she's in great income. She's like, well, look, if I only have another 30 grand, okay. Um, and she's going to ask her uncle, you know, not saying this is what everyone should do. No, not everyone's fortunate enough to do that. But because mm. she's like 150 and she needs 180, it's only 30 she's asking for. She showed good history. And that's why parents are happy to help a lot of the time, is because they say, well, I know you've worked hard for this. Mm. And I'm just going to help you bridge that gap. They're not providing this big deposit and knowing that they um, haven't even worked for it. So, yeah, it's, it's sort of that's sort of what's happening. A changing world. Well, thank you so much for sending through your questions. Uh, as we've promised, we're delivering more of these Q&A episodes, so keep sending them through and uh, we look forward to delivering the next one. Thank you so much. I really love answering these questions and we hope you're enjoying listening. Please join us for our next episode. We're interviewing Kate Bacos, the president of REBA. That's the Real Estate Buyers Agents Association. Why are we doing this? Well, because buyers agents are in hot demand at the moment as all of you anxious house hunters trying to get an edge in a crazy market. But how do you choose a good one? And what are some of the pitfalls? And importantly, some of the really intelligent questions to ask that are going to shine a light on who the good buyers agents are. It's unmissable. If you're looking to buy your dream home or an investment property in Sydney's inner west, eastern suburbs or North Shore, my team and I can help you buy without regrets. Reach out via my website, gooddeeds.com.au. If you're looking to buy your first home, thinking of upgrading into a new one or purchasing an investment property anywhere in Australia, my team love to carefully guide you on this journey and most importantly, get the finance right. Reach out via our website, wealthful.com.au. Thanks for joining us. We'd love to see you again. And remember, don't be a dumbo.